Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone, and welcome back to uh, New Books in History. I'm Christina Fryer, and today we're talking with uh, Richard Keller, um, who's just written a great book, uh, Fatal Isolation, The Devastating Paris Heat Wave of 2003. Um, Rick Keller, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. So, Rick, I was wondering... everyone, and welcome back to uh, New Books in History. I'm Christina Fryer, and today we're talking with uh, Richard Keller, um, who's just written a great book, uh, Fatal Isolation, The Devastating Paris Heat Wave of 2003. Um, Rick Keller, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. So, Rick, I was wondering if you could tell us uh, how you uh, became interested in the history of medicine, and in particular, uh, interested in the history of medicine of France. Sure. Thanks so much for the question, and thanks so much for the for the interview. Uh, I began uh, as a PhD student at Rutgers as a, a French historian, and I was working on a project that sort of explored the intersections of the history of uh, psychiatry and psychoanalysis with French cultural history. And so it's a project that could have gone in any of a number of different directions. As it turns out, the research wound up really driving the project. Um, and it wound up being a project on the history of psychiatry in France's colonies and the ways in which, uh, basically the ways in which psychiatric knowledge both supported a colonial mission, but at the same time, the ways in which practice of psychiatry in colonial space uh, really transformed the profession in profound ways. So it was a matter really of, um, you know, kind of being trained in French cultural and social history and it just sort of happening upon a project that was basically driven by the sources that were available. Right. And the next thing you know, I uh, wound up in a position uh, in history of medicine at Wisconsin. So well, uh, the rest is history, well, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about your first book and especially how, um, how you sort of transitioned from that book to this uh, current project on the heat wave? Sure. So Colonial Madness was essentially a, a project about, as I said, the, the relationship between, uh, I should say, a mutually productive relationship between psychiatry and uh, France's larger imperial projects, uh, mostly in the early 20th century. And it, basically, I was interested in this kind of fundamental problem in the history of science, which has been uh, sort of ever more pronounced in colonial studies, which is the relationship between a sort of metropolitan core and a colonial periphery and the production of knowledge. And the, the story essentially has gone really forever in the history of science anyway, uh, that, you know, kind of real science is produced in metropolitan centers, whereas, you know, people just kind of gather data out in the field in colonial settings. Uh, and anything that's done in the colonies had to sort of pass through a kind of metropolitan obligatory point of passage, essentially to quote someone like Bruno Latour, um, in order to be, to be considered legitimate scientific knowledge. And actually what I found was that in the case of psychiatry, at least, uh, and in the case of French psychiatry in Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco, uh, that 
really, this was not the story at all. That um, for a whole range of reasons, having to do with the occupation of France, having to do with the sort of ostification of psychiatry in metropolitan France, uh, that really the kind of cutting-edge practices were happening in the colonies rather than in a place like Paris or Lyon. So uh, that, that was essentially what drove that project. Now, how I got from there to here, um, there's actually a more direct relationship than you might think. I finally, uh, so I defended my dissertation in 2001 and was working then on, on turning it into a book manuscript. And I finally got authorization to look at some files in the French colonial archives in Aix-en-Provence uh, in the summer of 2003. So I spent that summer actually in France uh, in uh, the, not the big heat wave. I left, on a, I think it was July 27th or 28th. I'd have to go back and double check my itinerary to be sure. Um, but certainly before the August one hit. But there were two earlier heat waves that summer. So there was one in uh, June and one in July, both of which were pretty serious. Uh, they didn't bring anywhere near the level of mortality that the one in August did. Um, but they did make it awfully miserable to be there. And so it was something that sort of resonated with me when I came home and then started hearing about all this mortality. Uh, it was something that was kind of unsurprising. And I just, the one thing I couldn't believe is that yet another heat wave had struck. I thought they had sort of, you know, paid their due for the summer. Uh, but then, you know, lo and behold, uh, this, this absolutely staggering uh, disaster arrives uh, in, in August. How I actually came to work on the project, I mean, that's, that's how it sort of stood out to me um, and, and kind of resonated with me. But how I actually came to work on the project um, had to do with sitting next to the then dean of the School of Medicine and Public Health at Wisconsin at a job talk. And he passed me a note and it just said, you should do, you should do a project. You should write something about this heat wave in, in France. Now, part of the reason for that is that uh, the, the, the dean, Phil Farrell, was, um, is very much a Francophile. He spends lots and lots of time in France, so uh, that clearly sort of stood out to him. But when he himself was a medical resident uh, in St. Louis, the first patient he had who died on his watch, which I imagine has to be traumatic for any physician, uh, was actually a heat stroke victim during a heat wave in St. Louis. And so I think those two things kind of really made this event stand out for him, and he passed me a note and, you know, I thought, OK, maybe I'll write a paper on it or something. And then I read Eric Kleinenberg's book on the Chicago heat wave of 1995, which I think is a really dazzling, uh, really fantastic book um, and thought, wow, there, there's really something there. And so from that point on, uh, from about the winter of 2004 on, I'd been working on this project, sort of chipping away at it over time. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Sure. Um, so. Can you tell us a little bit about the 2003 heat wave? Um, just sort of the, we'll, we'll go through the detailed chronology a little bit later, but just for listeners who might not be aware or might not have uh, tuned into the news at that point, um, what exactly happened? Um, you said uh, that it was a little unsurprising. Could you talk a little bit more about why it was unsurprising um, and what happened and why it was so uh, important in France? Sure. So the, the heat wave, uh, the August heat wave arrived, uh, the temperatures started inching up uh, on August 1st uh, and really started to go through the roof on about the 3rd or 4th of August. And if you actually look at uh, mortality, it was about a day or two behind that uh, bodies started to really pile up uh, around August 5th, 6th, 7th or so. Um, and then by the time you get to August 12th, there were actually uh, on the date of August 12th, there are actually 2,200 excess deaths on that day alone. 
So this is a, a pretty serious disaster by, by any measure, right, if, if we're considering mortality. As it turns out, it, uh, as best I can tell, it's the worst natural disaster when measured by mortality in contemporary France. So it's pretty serious, right? It's, it's, it's pretty staggering in terms of, of the death toll. So it produced within about three weeks uh, about 15,000 excess deaths. And I can talk about what an excess death is uh, at some point in the conversation. Um, but it's a typical measure of mortality during a disaster. Um, uh, so that means, I, I mean, this is kind of mind-blowing in terms of, of mortality. We're talking about a country that in the year 2000 um, was rated by the World Health Organization as having the best public health system in the world. Uh, that then, you know, is, is absolutely leveled by some hot weather. And so that's kind of interesting in its own right, right? How it is that something that we could consider kind of a more extreme version of what you'd normally expect in summer, right? We expect the summer to be hot. Um, we expect hot spells, especially hot spells in every summer. Uh, so how could this be, right? Um, and I think that was a, a general sense in France as well. Uh, how is it that um, this... Uh, how is it that something so mundane as a heat wave could produce such uh, truly devastating mortality? So one of the things that stands out very quickly, if you look at the work that epidemiologists and demographers did in the immediate aftermath of the disaster, uh, and they did really impressive work. Within seven weeks, they came up with a death toll that has held up right uh, in, in the years since, in the 12 years since the heat wave. Uh, people have, you know, sort of, it questioned some points in their methodology, but nobody really has suggested any kind of a dramatic revision. So if you look at the work they did, there are two huge disparities that stand out, right? One of them is that of the 15,000 who died, about 12,000 were over 75 years old. Okay, so the, the vast majority of those who died were elderly and what we might even consider very elderly. The other big disparity is that people who died tended to be concentrated overwhelmingly in cities. This was an urban phenomenon. So those are, are two kind of big issues. One is demographic and the other is, is geographic, essentially, right? And if you look at the concentrations of mortality in, in French cities, one of the crazy things that stands out is if you actually look at a temperature map of France, um, that, that wasn't necessarily where the highest temperatures were recorded. Okay, so the, the mortality doesn't overlap directly with the death toll. And so those three things suggested to me that something uh, not just physiological, not just meteorological, but indeed something social was happening here, right? That these disparities had um, something very much to do with basic social systems in France and, so, and broader social dysfunctions. And so that was the angle that I, I pursued going into this. Now, I, I have to say that's not terribly unique, right? Everybody who's done sociological or anthropological work on disaster or historical work, if you look at someone like Ted Steinberg at, at Case, who's doing just marvelous stuff, um, you know, virtually all of these investigations point, that, point out the social, right? A, a, a meteorological event is a meteorological event until it strikes a human community. Right? So a hurricane out to sea is not a disaster. A hurricane becomes a disaster when it hits New Orleans, right? or when it hits uh, a human community anywhere in the world. Uh, that's when we begin to talk about a natural disaster. And so it's kind of curious that we use the term natural disaster just to describe something that's fundamentally social. right? Uh, and so that was kind of the angle that I pursued in, in doing the research on the project.
And for listeners, um, I, I want to echo your recommendation of, of Steinberg, who I myself have used. Um, I've used it in teaching and I've used it um, in my own work. And he really is fabulous at laying out the, the sort of contradiction behind the term of natural disaster when actually it's a, it's a social problem. Um, so you say that there's that you're focusing mainly on this uh, social issue, and I think this is a good way to get us into the introduction um, sure. of your of your book, um, where you really lay out um, your project, um, sort of the unique aspects of your project, and I think also really lay out some of the innovative approaches. Um, you've talked about sort of disaster studies um, and the way that that's influenced your work. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what kind of disaster a heat wave is? It's a very different kind of disaster from, say, an earthquake or a hurricane. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Uh, disaster, I mean, no, I, I do, I, I'm going to back away from what I just said, right? Okay. <laughs> I talk about the social dimensions of disaster being critical. Um, there are some critical elements of uh, sort of agency within a natural disaster uh, that, that are defined by nature, right? So the same population that that's vulnerable to heat waves may not be vulnerable to floods. Um, so there are different kinds of vulnerabilities uh, that are exploited by different kinds of disasters. Okay. Uh, so that's one critical thing to point out. So what is it about heat waves? So if we look at, um, in the United States is where we have the best data. So every year in the U.S., from all meteorological disasters or meteorological extremes combined, okay, so we're talking hurricanes, floods, tornadoes, right, um, everything combined, about 200 people die every year. And that's a pretty consistent data point over time. About 1,500 people die from extreme heat every year. So one of the things that we have to recognize about heat waves is that they're sort of under-recognized in terms of their severity. You know, we, if we hear that a hurricane's coming, we won't go on vacation there, right? We won't drive to New Orleans when we hear a hurricane's coming out or, or to, to Galveston, Texas, if we hear that a hurricane's coming out. Um, we don't drive into a flood zone on vacation, right? We'll, we'll change our plans. But life goes on during a heat wave, right? No one evacuates because of a heat wave. And so part of the, the sort of mundaneness of, of heat waves is precisely what makes them so lethal. We don't really take them seriously, and therefore we, we kind of reap those consequences when summer comes around every year. So that's one thing about heat waves. The other thing about heat waves is that they tend to kill people who we already sort of expect to die in disproportionate numbers. And so no one's really surprised when an 85-year-old dies. Right. It, we can say that it's sad, um, but but very rarely are we going to call the death of someone in their 80s or 90s tragic. Um, we usually say, well, this person lived a, a long life and, uh, you know, they, they had certainly lived past their their typical life expectancy. And so no one's really surprised when that person dies. Likewise, if there's, say, a, a homeless uh, alcoholic or, or uh, injecting drug user. Right? We see this person as vulnerable in any circumstance, so we're not really surprised if that person dies. Um, someone with severe mental illness who lives in complete isolation, again, it's not someone whose death is terribly shocking. And these are the kinds of people who die in really disproportionate numbers in heat waves right? for a whole range of reasons, some physiological, um, but some also, I, I would argue, uh, social in nature. Right, So... The physiological explanation is that as we get older, our bodies don't thermoregulate as well. That is, our bodies don't dissipate heat as well as they do when we're in the prime of life. 
likewise, um, there are certain medications that you can take uh, for Parkinson's disease or, or uh, schizophrenia or other psychotic disorders that produce the same reaction, essentially, right? That, um, that, that sort of inhibit thermoregulation. The other issue is, again, with these same classes of medications and with aging, uh, we don't get messages of dehydration as quickly. So our brain doesn't recognize that we're thirsty, even though our bodies are becoming dehydrated. So all of that adds up to, you know, pretty high vulnerability uh, for people who are aging or for people who, uh, people who are taking these, these certain classes of drugs. So that's one really important factor. But again, one of the reasons that we have to recognize that this is a social phenomenon rather than strictly a physiological one is we can look at other populations that are extremely vulnerable too. And so this is one of the things that I looked at immediately is what happened to newborn babies, right? Newborn babies are just as terrible at thermoregulating. They're just as bad at getting themselves something to drink, right? They, they're not very good at that at all. They can cry to be fed, but um, they're, they're not very self-sufficient, right? Uh, and, you know, in terms of like surface uh, area of their bodies and so on, they, they're, they're lousy at thermoregulating. So, if 12,000 uh, elderly died during the heat wave, I was amazed to find out that only about six or seven newborns died. Wow. Right? Not six or 7,000, six or seven, period. Um, and, so, and, and that could be just a statistical anomaly. And what I would argue is that newborns are, by definition, embedded in a social network. Right? They are either with parents who take care of their needs or they're, uh, if, even if they're in an orphanage, uh, someone is taking care of them, right? Newborns who aren't in a social network die very quickly. And so uh, that indicated to me, again, that something beyond physiology is creating these kinds of vulnerabilities. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so with, you say, uh, 12,000 of the people who died were over 75. Is that right? Correct. Okay. And within that group, you focus quite a bit on um, the people that I guess you call or the French called the forgotten. Um, yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that group of people um, and sure. why they were so important to your story? Yeah. Well, one of the things that I found uh, really fascinating was um, doing a kind of media survey of how the press treated the disaster, right? And how essentially uh, newspapers and print journalism treated the disaster, but also how uh, television journalism treated the disaster. One of the great resources that French historians have at their disposal that, uh, you know, that there may be um, a, a parallel somewhere else, but um, Inatec, which is the Institut National de l'Audiovisuel, um, it's basically this uh, media collection that's in the Bibliothèque Nationale. Um, and what's amazing about it is basically everything that has ever been on French TV or radio is there at your disposal. It's incredibly well cataloged, so it's very easy to do um, a, a media survey of any uh, historical experience. So it's a, a great resource for media studies people, of course, but an underused one, I think, for historians. Um, in doing this media survey, there was one story that came up again and again in late August and early September, and that was a sense of shock and outrage that in a country that invented the notion of human rights and humanitarianism, right, or at least thinks it did, um, that there could be hundreds of bodies that had been unclaimed, that had been abandoned, that had been left behind uh, by any relatives or friends. And so if you dig into the story a, a little bit more carefully, um, 
basically what I was able to figure out is that there were about 100 bodies that were unclaimed and were left uh, to be buried at public expense by, uh, by Paris officials. There were uh, you know, a few dozen elsewhere throughout the country, but the biggest concentration of them was really in Paris. And you know, I began kind of reading these stories uh, that, which provided some kind of insight into the French response to the disaster. That is a sort of broader social or cultural response to the disaster, which was one that said, you know, how is this possible in, in what we call a civilization to, you know, abandon our, our vulnerable relatives and friends? Um, and politicians, in particular on the French right, but, uh, but really across the, the political spectrum, Consider this to be a complete failure of social solidarity. That is, that, and, and you know, part of this had to do with when the event took place. It happened in early August, which is uh, the traditional summer vacation period in France. Um, if you've ever been to Paris in August, you'll notice that half the city is closed, right? Because yes. so many people are out of town. And this really fit in perfectly with a kind of narrative that the French right has been uh, making a lot of hay with for the past couple of decades, really. Um, which is that a sort of culture of entitlement in France um, is something that has engendered a, a, a sort of collapse in the family and a collapse in society. So the way the narrative went is that, uh, you know, as sort of middle-class families went on their vacations, they abandoned their elder, elderly relatives to die unloved, uh, you know, neglected uh, in, this, in this heat wave, when really just a phone call or a visit could have saved their lives. And maybe that's true in a handful of cases, right? But the way the press played up this story was that, and they didn't even care to go pick up the bodies, right? They wouldn't even let that interrupt their vacation. So it was a narrative of the sort of inherent selfishness of the French middle class uh, and their, their sense of entitlement to a vacation that, you know, engendered this, this huge social collapse. And it's really not true, right? It's really not how... Uh, the death toll played out. It's really not how the disaster played out. People who died during the heat wave were by and large people who had very few social contacts, right? That even includes the, the, uh, you know, the, the thousands and thousands of others whose bodies were claimed by distant relatives in many cases in the end. Um, it, there were very few cases of people simply abandoning elderly relatives and letting them be buried by the state, right? That's just not really the way it played out. I found this case uh, to be really fascinating, the case of the way in which the nation responded to these so-called forgotten victims of the heat wave, uh, to be indicative of the way in which a broader cultural and political debate played out in France after the disaster. Okay, France wasn't the only country affected. This was a heat wave that swept through Western and Central Europe, and it wreaked horrible death tolls everywhere it went, right? So France wasn't the only country to be affected. But it was the only country that had this enormous uh, and really uh, sort of virulent social debate about the role of the state, the relationship between the individual and the state. How could this have happened here in particular? It's the only place where that kind of discourse characterized the response to the disaster. And in many ways, this handful of forgotten victims um, seems to be, I think, the really best place to explore uh, why that particular debate emerged in France. Well, with that, um, why don't we move into the chapter structure itself? Um, and the first chapter, you really give us a, a pretty detailed chronology um, of the heat wave itself, how it sort of rolled over uh, or rolled through France. Um, and then particularly interesting, I found, was 
um, the state response um, from a variety of state departments. Uh, so can you walk us through uh, the chronology of the disaster, focusing especially on the state response um, adequate, though it may not have been? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, and, and I'm certainly not the first person to point that out either. Um, so essentially, as I had said earlier, the temperatures start inching up in the first week of August, uh, start getting uh, pretty severe at the end of that first week. And there were warnings kind of floating through the health ministry at the time, right? So uh, the, the health ministry had kind of gotten on the case. They recognized that this was potentially a problem, but there was a sort of rotating series of people through the front desk uh, or, or through the, the sort of head of that office, um, partially because of the vacation schedule, right? So you'd have uh, someone sort of turn over the reins to the second in command uh, for a few days and say, okay, I'm going out of town, keep an eye on this, on this heat wave. This could be kind of serious. Uh, and then that person would leave and turn over the reins to the next person in, in, in the chain of command. And so there was to some extent sort of a communication failure. Uh, in the state response, right? That it, it kept sort of getting passed off from one person to another. And so it wasn't really taken terribly seriously, even though people were discussing it. I mean, one of the great things about being a contemporary historian uh, or, or studying a contemporary disaster um, is the sources that one has access to. And so one of the things I was able to find through the National Assembly's website was actually all the discovery documents, which included uh, from the National Assembly's investigation of the disaster, which included every email that went through the health ministry uh, during the disaster. So, you know, it's amazing. I, you know, I have 500 pages of printed out emails um, that were, uh, you know, sort of detailed the, the, the ministry's response the whole way through. So it was really um, a, a kind of an unparalleled set of documents to work with. So that said, uh, by the time the story really broke, uh, it was August 9th and 10th, that weekend. It was a Saturday and Sunday. Uh, Le Parisien, one of the uh, kind of main national newspapers, um, published a story on August 9th saying, hey, this is getting kind of serious, right? And they had an interview with uh, someone who worked for the, the National Health Surveillance uh, Agency, sort of the French equivalent to um, like what we have, uh, the CDC in Atlanta, right? Uh, they're ch kind of charged with epidemiological surveillance. So uh, there was an interview with, with him in the paper on Saturday. And then there was a TV interview, and this is when the story really blew open, on Sunday night, August 10th, uh, when the head of France's Emergency Physicians Union uh, came out on television and said, this is a disaster. We are getting buried in bodies here. And even he dramatically underestimated the numbers of bodies. He said, you know, here in, in, in the, the Paris region, we've got about 50, uh, 50 dead over the course of this weekend alone. And that, as it turns out, was a dramatic underestimate. Right, a dramatic underestimate. By Monday morning, uh, over 9,000 people had already died. Wow. Right? And not just in the Paris region, throughout the country. But uh, indeed, the, the mortality was absolutely devastating by August 11th. So the health ministry didn't really take it seriously, even at the time. Even after the, the physicians' union had uh, blew open the story, the health ministry, again, really didn't take it terribly seriously. So fully 24 hours after that story broke, uh, the health minister was interviewed while he was on vacation uh, at his villa in southern France. And this was like a huge political miscalculation. He gave the interview while wearing actually a polo shirt, not unlike what I'm wearing myself <laughs> right now, um, in order to try to convey an air of calm, 
He didn't want people to panic. So he didn't want to show up at a hospital in a suit. Uh, he didn't want to wear a lab coat. He's a physician himself. He didn't want to wear a lab coat uh, for the interview. He wanted to wear a polo, and he appears on the grounds of his villa as if everything is okay, right? We've got it in hand. We're taking care of the situation. You know, in terms of the numbers of dead, yeah, we're hearing 50 here, maybe 100 there. Um, but he was really blasé about it, right? He just kind of blew it off. And that, I think, was a huge political miscalculation that basically cost him his job eventually. The state responded very slowly. Uh, the next day, he comes back to Paris, uh, the, and the, um, uh, the prime minister initiated a plan that would open more hospital beds and call doctors and nurses back from their vacations to manage the, the emergency. At about the same time, the temperature broke. And so you know, the temperature declined pretty seriously. Bodies kept piling up because people died from sort of after effects uh, of the heat wave for the next, uh, next few days. And indeed, one of the critical issues was that so many people died alone in their apartments that it took time to discover all of the bodies. Right? But just to give you a sense of the magnitude of the disaster, uh, France has a public funeral system. Okay, it's a public agency that essentially handles the transportation of bodies. Uh, so if somebody dies at home, when the body gets transported to the morgue, that's usually a public agency that does that, not a, not a private company, not a private funeral home. So I interviewed the director of uh, Paris's public funeral services, and he indicated that on any given day in August, they transport about 30 bodies through the city. Okay? Now, on August 12th, 13th, and 14th, they transported nearly 800 bodies. So, you know, a factor of eight times what, what they really should have um, experienced in terms of a, of a, of a, a labor burden. So that, that should give you some indication of how serious it was, even just in Paris itself. Uh, and so the state response was, it was late um, and it was inadequate. And it was one that kind of showed a really powerful disconnect when you've got a health minister being interviewed, trying to treat it casually. At the same time, that's juxtaposed on the news with footage of people running around like crazy in emergency rooms um, with, with people sort of stacked up in the hallways in emergency rooms because they simply don't have enough space for all of the patients and certainly for all the bodies. Right. And it's one of those situations where, you know, you feel as though um, anybody going into public service should almost have a crash course in how to deal with uh, disasters on, on television. Um, right. You would think that the polo shirt and the villa approach would not be uh, best recommended. Um, Absolutely. And it's also interesting the way that actually it seems like the funeral workers and the, the this public funeral agency were the real people um, sort of raising the flag and raising the alarm in a really serious way as opposed to any sort of more official, uh, more official channel. A Absolutely. Right. And, uh, you know, the funeral home funeral services are not really charged with any kind of sentinel public health function, right? Um, they're, they're not, that's not really part of their job. And yet they're the ones who really sounded the alarm. And they came up with a really accurate estimate of what the death toll was um, far before the state came up with it, right? right. Um, and, and that had to do with simply extrapolating, well, if this is happening in these urban centers and this is happening in some of these rural uh, funeral homes, we can sort of extrapolate and, and make a guess as to what's happening nationally. Uh, and indeed, they were pretty close, right? They were they were pretty darn close to the actual death toll. That's so fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so in chapter two, you move into uh, talking about the forgotten more directly. Sure. Um, and you have this idea, a sort of anecdotal life, which is both uh, a method, uh, but also kind of a way, I think, of honoring 
um, the forgotten, as well as highlighting their marginality um, and really challenging this narrative that these were people who were abandoned um, by existing families. So could you talk sure. a little bit more about um, anecdotal life or this phrase anecdotal life um, and what you've discovered about the forgotten themselves? Sure. So the way I took on the project, right? So I began with this idea that, you know, these hundred or so, uh, uh, you know, so-called abandoned uh, bodies might suggest, a, 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 might offer a, a kind of unique window, a uh, methodological window into the disaster. So what I did was I uh, went to, and part of this actually came from a frustration. I was trying to get, uh, you know, sort of good mortality data and access to death certificates and so on from uh, city officials in Paris. And I was really frustrated at every turn in, in trying to get access to those data. Um, and so I finally decided one day, you know, forget it. I took a bus out to the cemetery where they were all buried uh, at, at public expense in this big ceremony that happened on September 3rd of 2003. Um, I, I went out to the cemetery and just kind of looked around at the headstones and, you know, went to the, the section of the cemetery where they had all been buried uh, and took down all of their names and their dates of birth and death. Right? And, and most of them were identified. There were a couple that uh, where the, these tombs just didn't even have a tag on them at all because it was essentially an, an, an unknown person entirely. But most of them were, uh, were identified and had either birth or death dates or, or both. And so uh, then I tried to figure out, well, how am I going to figure out who these people were and, and where they lived and, and what their, not only their deaths were like, but what their lives were like. So I went to the Bibliothèque Nationale and looked in old telephone books uh, to see if I could find their addresses. And that actually worked better than you might think uh, for, for most of them. Um, I also at the same time uh, realized that if you've got somebody's name and date of death, then you can request a, what's called a death notice from the city. Okay, so a death notice isn't a death certificate. It doesn't have any medical or cause of death information. You know, it's not filled out by a medical examiner. Uh, by a medical examiner. It's something that's filled out by, uh, by a city clerk, essentially. Um, but it's sort of like a birth certificate is, right? It has you know, information about when the person died, where they died, uh, whether they were married or not, uh, who their parents were. So it's got demographic information. And they're incredibly useful, right? Even if they don't tell you the, the exact circumstances of a death, if they, if they don't have that information, they can still kind of point you in the right direction. And so... Uh, the catch is that you have to know which neighborhood they lived in in the city. And so I had to write lots and lots of these requests. But eventually, uh, you know, from I think there were 95 of these cases, and I think I got 93 death notices in the end. It took a couple of years to get all of them. But um, by the time I got them all, I mean, it was a near total return, right? So, so that was great. So between the phone books and uh, these, these death notices, I was able to figure out where people had either died or where they had lived when they died. Okay. So if they died in the hospital, it also would still have their last known address. So I got on my bike or, you know, in the Metro or just walked uh, to these addresses and knocked on doors and asked questions. Uh, so I would talk to the guardian or concierge of the building, which is someone who essentially takes care of the building, a building caretaker, caretaker, um, someone who, sweeps the stairs, distributes mail, and that sort of thing. And they're sort of a fixture in, in many Parisian buildings. Um, and they're great sources of information. They see the comings and goings. They know everyone who lives in the building. And so they can be a really great uh, set of informants. 
so I would, I would try to talk with them uh, where they existed. Um, otherwise, I would knock on other doors and ask neighbors or ask shopkeepers in the area if they knew anything about this person. And again, you know, kind of remarkably, I got lots of good responses. Sometimes people would slam the door in my face and say, you know, I don't want to talk to you. I, you know, who, who is this American who's asking questions about this dead person? Um, but in, in many cases, you know, I would have people bring me into their apartments, sit me down and, and give a full interview. You know, sometimes that interview would be 10 or 20 minutes. Sometimes it would actually last a couple of hours. But I was able to collect social histories for many of these um, so-called forgotten victims, which indicated to me, for one thing, that they weren't all that forgotten. Uh, so people knew who they were and, and knew something about their life circumstances, even if we couldn't expect them to take responsibility for that person at the time of their death. Um, it, but, it, you know, it indicated that these people were at least somewhat embedded in, in a broader social community. What I got every time was a series of anecdotes about that person, right? So if I would ask about someone who died, if, if you know, uh, you know I, I know Pedro supposedly died when he was living in this building, what can you tell me about him? Uh, I would get a response that would almost invariably be a series of anecdotes that began from the person's death in isolation. Okay, so basically the beginning of the story was the end of this person's life. And every one of those little anecdotes would provide hints as to how the informant, the person I was interviewing, saw this person inevitably dying a death in isolation. And I thought that was a really interesting way to frame the story. It was never, you know, oh yeah, he was a nice guy, he kept to himself, Um, he, he had a daughter, and then, you know, we were really surprised that he died. Right? It was never something like that. It was always, but let me tell you something about uh, her that indicates her personality and how difficult she was and how she brought this isolation upon herself and how, you know, she wanted to live an independent life, but she also refused all offers of help. Anytime anyone reached out to her, she would push them away, right? Or he would push them away. So almost invariably, this, the anecdotes that people told were anecdotes about the sort of self-imposed isolation that came from an admittedly difficult set of characters, right? I'm not trying to say that any of those who died um, or any of those whose stories I tell in the book you know, might have been particularly easy people to get along with, um, but that, I think, still makes them no less human, right? Um, and so I thought these were stories that were really worth, worth telling. So there's a lot of um, scholarship on the anecdote. Uh, people like uh, Stephen Greenblatt, and Catherine Gallagher, uh, Joel Feynman, and, and even an ethnographer like Clifford Geertz um, talk about the anecdote as a, a kind of an interesting sort of source for doing ethnographic or literary critical work. Um, and it's something that historians haven't, at least to the best of my knowledge, worked with so much, right? In, in many cases, something is dismissed as anecdotal or something is merely anecdotal, right? That is, it, it might be a good story, but it doesn't tell you about broader social patterns in the same way that really good kind of aggregate data might do. And I actually found it to be just the opposite, right? That I think these anecdotes were really important sources in their own right, because they provided, I think, an interesting reflection on what the cultural and social memory of the disaster was in a broader community of survivors, right? What is it that People who lived around those who died thought about the disaster and thought about what particular kinds of vulnerability um, might have influenced that kind of mortality. Right? How is it that people sort of live with themselves after the disaster 
and how do they reflect upon not their own roles or their own culpability. That's not what I'm driving at here. But how did they reflect on, you know, what really took place? And what they told were stories that were usually stories not just of miserable deaths, but usually of miserable lives as well. And one of the points that I make in this chapter and, and throughout the book is that there are no happy endings in this book at all, um, but there were precious few happy beginnings either. Right? Most of those who died during the disaster, or most of those in, in the set I study who died during the disaster, which is an admittedly biased set. Right? I'm not trying to say that this can stand in for everyone, um, but they, they you know, were born in poverty. Uh, they lived marginal lives uh, really the whole way through. They suffered disproportionately from physical and mental disabilities. They suffered disproportionately from addictions. Uh, they suffered from the consequences of old age in isolation. A whole series of, um, uh, of, of vulnerabilities that really stacked the odds against them when the heat arrived. Right. So it also, if, I think this is also a good opportunity for us to talk a little bit about what you describe as the history of the present. Um, because you're you're getting these anecdotes via oral interviews, via ethnography, um, which, at least from how you've described your first project, seems like that was a bit of a departure for you. Sure. Um, so can you talk about how you felt about doing this kind of ethnographic oral history kind of work for this project um, and how that contributed to what you describe in the book as a history of the present? Sure. I had done some oral history and a little bit of ethnographic work for the first book um, because I, I did sort of follow through the kind of aftermath of colonial psychiatry, not only in North Africa and in Tunisia in particular, uh, but also in France. And so I interviewed a number of uh, practicing psychiatrists, uh, for example, and psychoanalysts who had, um, who had sort of participated in that history and got their stories, uh, but also talked to a couple of contemporary practitioners about you know, what they sort of thought about the colonial past and its legacies for the present. Um, so th there was at least a little bit of that in, in the first book. The other thing is that I was really profoundly influenced in the first book by work in medical and in particular psychiatric anthropology, um, which I think, you know, for I, I think historians of medicine really need to pay attention to that work um, because it provides, uh, I think, a really interesting set of methodological questions for historians to ask about the social components of medicine and health. So, uh, you know, this wasn't completely new to me, but it was, you know, in terms of the core method for doing a, a big project like this, uh, it certainly was a new, uh, new kind of approach, uh, at least for me. Part of that was influenced by lots of, I think, the fantastic work that sociologists and anthropologists have done in particular on disasters. Um, and so, so part of it came from that literature and the sets of questions that people like Kim Fortune or, uh, um, uh, or Diane Vaughn or uh, even Charles Perrault are asking about, uh, about disasters. But uh, Lee Clark would be another example, Kai Erickson. Um, so, so part of it came from, from that literature. But um, in terms of writing a history of the present, I was convinced that this was a disaster that was long-term in its making, right? That the processes that created these vulnerabilities were things that didn't happen overnight. And part of this came from, you know, reading between the lines of Eric Kleinenberg's book on the Chicago heat wave, where he talks about phenomena like white flight in Chicago. He talks about the collapse of, of certain neighborhoods as the tax base leaves for the suburbs um, he talks about what happens when Sears, move, Sears Roebuck moves out of Chicago. 
and the jobs go with it, right? And so he talks about a process of social decline um, that had created a whole new set of vulnerabilities that play out in, in 1995 in the heat wave. Now, he's a sociologist, and, he, and you know, he, he sort of mentions this offhand. He doesn't really dig into the history, and as well he shouldn't, right? I mean, he, this is not a flaw in the book by any, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but I thought, again, reading someone like Ted Steinberg's work, that looking at the long-term historical development of these kinds of vulnerabilities might provide an indication into the kinds of decision-making, the kinds of policies that have been in place that have influenced that kind of vulnerability. And so the, the, in writing a so-called history of the present, I was interested in, in looking at, okay, how did this heat wave play out? I wasn't just interested in contemporary history, but interested in long-term genealogies of vulnerability. Okay, and there were two, I think, critical ones that, uh, that I explore in some detail in chapters three and four in the book. So the first is a, a sort of history of urban planning in Paris. How is it that we, we see the emergence of this geography of vulnerability that plays out on a couple of different levels, right? There is a kind of spatial geography of vulnerability. If you look on the horizontal plane, where certain neighborhoods were more effective than others. And demographers and epidemiologists and geographers have looked at that question, you know, really carefully. What they've done is they've kind of plotted mortality through the whole city, and then they've looked at things like socioeconomic factors, uh, you know, household revenues, uh, numbers of people living in different, you know, so they've looked at census data uh, and a whole series of other, um, you know, kinds of figures to try to make some guesses about what influenced those kinds of patterns of vulnerability. And that's great. Um, one of the things that I found when looking at this group of the, of the so-called forgotten victims of the heat wave is they don't really line up in any one neighborhood or other. And so there's a map in the book that uh, shows that they are just scattered completely throughout the city. But that also doesn't mean that there isn't a specific geography of isolation and vulnerability in, in this heat wave. One of the things that I figured out was that there's a vertical geography of vulnerability. So if you look at the horizontal plane, you don't see concentrations. But if you look at the vertical makeup of the city, there's a real concentration of those who died in isolation, whose bodies weren't claimed. Uh, who lived on the top floors of their buildings. Okay, now, we can explain that you know, through uh, physical explanations, right? We can say that, okay, he, the heat load increases as you go up in a building, and anybody who's been in their attic on a hot summer day knows what that feels like, right? But the other thing to point out is that there's a geography of poverty that follows that same pattern in Paris. Right? This is a city that was built before elevators, and the social geography of the city in terms of its verticality is one where the nicest apartments, the most expensive apartments, tend to be the ones on the first and second floors of the building. Right? Not on the ground floor, but you know, up one and, and, and two, maybe three levels. Um, it, it is not a penthouse culture where the nicest places are on the top of the building. Those indeed are tiny attic rooms. They're former servants' quarters. And this is a, a sort of architectural geography that emerged in the 19th century remaking of the city a remaking of the city that itself unfolds on public health grounds, right? Designed to try to stem the tide of infectious diseases that were sweeping through a Paris that was experiencing rapid demographic change, where its population grew from the 1820s from about eight, um, uh, about 800,000 people to about two and a half million people by the 1870s, right? And so that remaking of the city to cope with that kind of population change, to cope with epidemic after epidemic of cholera, tuberculosis, 
smallpox, typhus, a whole series of other infectious diseases. Um, you know, it led to this rebuilding of the city, but which created a whole series of vulnerabilities in its own right with this new uh, kind of architectural geography. And these are the uh, the Chambre de Bonne. Is that is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, um, it's a French term for you know maids' quarters or servants' quarters. I just want to flag for uh, for listeners um, that this is one of the the most fascinating sections uh, that I found. Um, this the way that Hausman um, is trying to create or eliminate certain vulnerabilities, but then ends up creating others, particularly in these, uh, in these vertical spaces. Can you tell us a little bit more about the experience of living or what living in one of these uh, Schoenberg de Bonn um, might have been like in the early 2000s for particularly elderly uh, residents? Sure. So there are, uh, you know, basically three different populations who live in, in these Schoenberg de Bonn or, or, or former servants' quarters. Um, one is students, right? I know, you know, plenty of my colleagues when we were all grad students doing our dissertation research in, in Paris, you know, plenty of my friends lived in, in, in places like this. Um, there are lots of undergraduate students who live in places like this, right? You know, Paris doesn't really have a whole lot of dorms, um, but it has a lot of universities and a lot of students, and this is cheap housing. So that's one population. Now, the one thing about that population is that, uh, you know, students tend to be younger, than the general population, right? And they tend to be more resilient. And so, you know, we can live in terrible circumstances for so long before they'll start catching up with us. So walking up seven flights of stairs isn't fun for anybody, but it's one thing for a 22-year-old. It's another thing entirely for someone who's in their 80s, right? Another population that tends to uh, be kind of disproportionately represented in that kind of housing is um, uh, immigrant families. Right. Sometimes undocumented, sometimes documented. And there, you know, I'm going to see a little bit more potential vulnerability. We're talking about people who tend to have less access to the resources of the state, um, who have less access to uh, stable employment. Right. Who live more precarious lives in general than, say, uh, you know, relatively well to do middle class or above students. At the same time, immigrant families are by definition families. Right? So they don't live alone. Right? So they don't live in isolation in these apartments. They live in crowded conditions. And there's a whole series of vulnerabilities that goes along with that. But they're not particularly vulnerable to heat waves uh, because they tend not to live alone. Somebody notices if somebody collapses from the heat and can call first responders. The third population are the elderly poor who have aged in place. Sometimes these are people who bought one of these apartments uh, in the 1940s, 50s, or 60s and, and remained there in the early 2000s. Uh, sometimes they're renters uh, who, again, have maybe they have uh, a rent-stabilized place and they were able to live there for uh, you know, decades on, on a very low rent. Uh, but they tend, to be, um, they tend to be much poorer than the general population. They tend to live alone. And so if you think about, you know, living in an apartment, uh, a room, really, that's about 100 square feet or less, uh, that may or may not have access to running water, that's required by law to have access to a toilet within the same building, but not necessarily on the same floor, then you start to recognize that, you know, being in your 80s or in your 90s um, with increasing disability that comes along with old age, um, is probably, I mean, this is a really less than ideal situation, right? It's one thing, again, to be 22 or 24 years old and to have to use a, a common bathroom on another floor. 
uh, to shower at a, a, a friend or significant other's house uh, or to shower at the gym at, at a university or something along those lines. Um, it's another thing entirely to have to do those sorts of things when you're, when you're very old and, uh, and increasingly disabled. And if you're recovering from a broken hip, uh, a seven-story spiral staircase is you know, essentially a, a prison cell. Right. And there's a way that the book describes that many of these people are increasingly trapped, um, right. can't get uh, to the ground floor, let alone, um, or even being able to get to the bathroom or toilet that might be two floors down or something along those exactly. lines. Um, so you mentioned that, that this is sort of the first, um, the, the first social con- or the first major social condition, this, ge- this local ge- geography of vulnerability. Um, and in chapter four, you talk about the second one, which are these long-standing debates in French society um, about, I don't want to say it this way, but the way that they phrase it, the problem of a- an increasingly aging population. Can you say sure. more about that? Yeah. So uh, one of the, the big strands in uh, contemporary French history, so you know, sort of late 19th century to the present, um, is one of demographic change, right? Um, and the, the sense of a demographic crisis in France. So this is something that um, my colleague Lou Roberts here at Wisconsin has, wrote about in Civilization Without Sexes, a really marvelous book uh, about a sort of gender crisis between the world wars that you know, by the, the end of the Franco-Prussian War in the 1870s, uh, France panics uh, about its demography. That is that the population is aging, there aren't enough babies being born, and this creates a broader set of vulnerabilities on, on a national scale, right? a sort of nat- broader national weakness, especially when faced with a perceived uh, baby boom in Germany. Right? As, the Germans were, as the German population is increasing, the French population is declining. Uh, not only is it declining, it's getting older, it's getting weaker, according to, um, according to this discourse. Uh, and it's getting more female, right? As the population ages, women tend to outlive men. Uh, and so there is, you know, the, the population curves tend to show uh, an increasing number of el- very elderly women uh, in proportion to the rest of the population. And so this, you know, it, it's the, the lack of babies being born. And this, this goes through cycle after cycle, right? There, there are some people who are always panicked about it. Um, but there are sort of waves of, of this kind of population hysteria that sweep through France. So one is in the early 1870s, um, after the, the this humiliating defeat in the Franco-Prussian War. Another comes after the First World War. And then another comes uh, after the Second World War, right, where there's a sense that, um, and there's one demographer, a French demographer, who wrote in the 40s that before being occupied by the Germans, France was taken over by, the, by elderly women. Right. And, and that created this national weakness, this national decay that allowed the Germans just to walk in and, and occupy our country. Um, you know, a lot of this is is politically motivated discourse. I mean, there is a, a reality to the demographic change that, that France experiences in the, the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, but a lot of this is is really pretty much hysteria. Right. Uh, about uh, a, a sort of broader sense of social decline. Uh, that gets pinned on the elderly, right? And it's as if the elderly are being blamed simply for growing old. And so one of the things that uh, one of the the readers of the manuscript pointed out, Dana Simmons, a historian of the welfare state in contemporary France, um, who just did did a a marvelous book called Vital Minimum, 
Um, one of the things that she pointed out in her review of the, of the manuscript was that, you know, it's interesting because you have all of these categories of people who disrupt the idea of citizenship in France. Uh, so it might be women, as Joan Scott points out in, uh, in, in a series of her works, um, but in particular, uh, her recent-ish book on, on parité. Uh, it might be Muslims. Uh, it might be immigrants who uh, seem to emphasize their religious difference over integration into the republic. Um, it, there's a number of different categories that sort of disrupt the category of the citizen. But one of the things that, that Dana pointed out in her review of the manuscript was that you know, it's interesting that this is one that we're all going to become. And if there's a sort of entropic way in which we can uh, sort of decline out of citizenship, that's pretty disturbing. And yet much of French political discourse in the 20th century seems to indicate exactly that, right? That the elderly are a population at the limits of citizenship, uh, that they are a population that has aged into marginalization uh, and aged into political irrelevance. Now, I don't want to accuse France in particular of ageism. Right. That's not that not the point of the book. I think we could find evidence of similar things happening in the United States, to be sure. Uh, I think we could probably find evidence of this happening in Germany and, and, and other places in Europe. Right. I, I don't want to say that France is unique um, in its kind of broader marginalization of, of the of the elderly. Um, but that said, you know, all of the evidence points to a very real process that's happened there, maybe happening in other places, too. But it happened there. And it happened there in a particular way um, that seems to devalue the lives of the elderly, right? As if the life of someone who is in their 70s isn't worth what the life of someone else is, is worth, right? And we might feel that way all the time, right? We, we again, as I said earlier in the interview, right, we, we don't consider the death of an 85-year-old a, a tragedy necessarily, um, I'm sure there are circumstances in which we could, but we don't typically think of it in the same way as we think of the death of a child, say, uh, as, as a real tragedy and something that we, we, we are racked with grief over. We think of this as a natural part of the life cycle. We, we are born, we go through adolescence, we go through adulthood, we then get old, and then we die, right? And, and it seems to be a natural part of the life process. But that said, I was really disturbed in reading a great deal about uh, not just the, the heat wave and the deaths of the elderly during the heat wave, but also um, it really a sort of social, sociological and, uh, and kind of more generally kind of journalistic literature on aging in contemporary France that indicated that, you know, some really disturbing things about a kind of dehumanization of the elderly that they have become in the words of one journalist, gluttons of the healthcare system, that they're consuming social resources disproportionate to their contribution to society, uh, that they've aged out of productivity and therefore aren't entitled to the same um, sort of benefits uh, or privileges of citizenship that they might have been at an earlier stage. A lot of this has to do with longstanding um, tensions within labor unions in particular, you know, are they going to fight for retirement or are they going to fight for employment for, for the young? Um, and the young have pretty much won, right? Anytime society is asked, is it going to invest in uh, care for the elderly or is it going to invest in youth? Usually the young win, right? Usually the young win in that, in that set of arguments. Right. 
that's that's really depressing. Um, but it, but, but I all getting older. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I also do suspect that 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 you're right that while this comes out particularly in France at this moment, it's not unique uh, to France. It just happens no, to definitely. have been uh, dredged up because of the heat wave. Um, so in the final chapter, you actually move away from uh, the focus on the elderly, um, and you talk about um, it's a, it's a it's a particularly complex argument, but I think one that's important. Um, the way that the sort of epidemiological uh, profiling, the way that the the disaster became seen as a problem uh, of protecting or caring for the elderly, actually produced uh, societal ignorance about the other members of the forgotten, um, in particular the mentally ill, um, the homeless, um, and drug addicts. Um, could you talk a little bit about uh, the arguments uh, in this chapter? Sure. So chapter five looks, you know, if chapter four looks at the elderly, the bulk of those who died during the disaster, chapter five looks at this um, pretty significant minority uh, who also died uh, really disproportionately during the disaster. So, you know, epidemiology is an aggregationist science, right? It's all about, you know, how do we establish a risk profile? How do we put together numbers in order to allocate public health resources that are limited in, in the wisest way, right? And so anybody looking at the heat wave would say, okay, 15,000 people died. 12,000 of them were very elderly. That's 80% of those who died. So we're going to dedicate our resources to preventing deaths among the elderly the next time a heat wave comes around. And so virtually every policy response in, in France since 2003 has been geared toward enhancing resilience among the elderly. And, and again, it makes good sense, right? I'm not questioning that. Uh, in, an, in an era in, with a declining welfare state, there's only so much the state can do. And so it makes sense to focus those resources where they may do the, the, the most good. So I, I have no qualms about that. At the same time, to focus on those 12,000, to the exclusion of the rest of those who died, is maybe to miss the forest for the trees a little bit. And there are still 3,000 people who weren't elderly who died, right, who were under 75 years old. That's two Katrinas, two Hurricane Katrinas worth of mortality, right? That's the, about the same number of people who died in New York on September 11th. I, I don't think any of us would think that that's an insignificant number. And so if we're ignoring that population at the expense of, of the bulk of those who died, then maybe that's, that's making some kind of a mistake, right, that, that's disregarding uh, a population that legitimately deserves uh, deserves our attention. So, one of the things that I, one of the ways that I wanted to approach this population in this chapter is to think about the whole question of outliers, right? If an aggregationist discipline like epidemiology concentrates on the sort of the middle of the bell curve, right, and and where you see the bulk of of, of victims of disaster of a disaster, and that allows them to build a, a risk profile. Um, and that risk profile winds up being essentially an elderly white French woman um, as, as the, the person who is most at risk during a disaster for a whole series of reasons we can get into if we have time. Um, it misses those so-called outliers, people who don't fit into that profile. And what's important about that is that those outliers might actually have something uh, very much in common with the inliers, right? With people who constitute the bulk of the population at risk. So one of the ways I want to think about this is, okay, maybe elderly white French women were the most at risk, but why were they the most at risk? 
And might they share something in common with those who uh, we might consider outliers, who, who aren't really the typical victim, um, like, say, a 43-year-old heroin addict who lives in, uh, you know, a, a squat with in a you know, sort of larger homeless population in one of the poorest neighborhoods of the city. And one of those things they share in common is social isolation, right, that they are sort of out of a social network. They share an experience of marginality. And so maybe the issue is not so much old age at all, but it's populations who are living at the margins of citizenship. And maybe that's the sort of bigger question we should be asking. In much the same way, if you look at the early epidemiology of HIV AIDS in the United States, right, this is one of the points I try to make in that chapter. Um, you know, if you look at the early AIDS epidemic in the 1980s, uh, it was considered to be a disease of gay men, right? It was considered to be a disease of men who had sex with men. And so you know, even when the CDC starts publishing uh, papers on this, you know, little uh, kind of papers in 1981, there are warnings from the editors saying, hey, you know, general practitioners, look out for this set of conditions in your gay male uh, patients, right? So there's a kind of blindering that happens where you say, okay, this is where the bulk of these cases are. We're going to focus our resources there. And we wind up missing other cases as a result. And so even by the end of the 1980s, you had people, you know, people, respected epidemiologists, making the case that women simply weren't a population at risk, right? And meanwhile, if you look by the 1990s, the fastest growing population of new infections with HIV are African-American women between ages 15 and 49. Right. And so I have to think that that almost exclusive concentration on men who had sex with men created a set of blinders that it basically eliminated other populations at risk from a kind of broader epidemiological purview and therefore generated enhanced risk for that population. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, I certainly got that parallel in, in the book. And I think uh, for listeners uh, looking uh, into re- or who want to read the book. Um, that the parallel that you make here with AIDS is actually really uh, illuminating the way that um, the sole focus on one particular group actually, in a way, creates uh, more hazard uh, for other groups who are not being, uh, who both aren't being studied as vulnerable and are also themselves being told that they are not vulnerable to, in the case of AIDS, um, AIDS, but in the case of of France, that they're not vulnerable uh, to heat. Um, And I think it was particularly interesting um, not that we'll go into it in any detail, but the way that people uh, who you spoke with about the members of the Forgotten who were not elderly assumed that they could not possibly have died because of the heat, that something else came right. into it. Well, and that's the thing. And again, so this is back to the anecdote, right? Uh, th- this is one of the very first cases I researched, um, and it's the anecdote I used to kind of structure the chapter. Uh, when I was still working with phone books before I got these death notices, Uh, Well, one of the things, one of the weaknesses of trying to track down someone's address from a phone book when you only have a name um, is that sometimes there is more than one person in a city of two million people who have the same name, right? And so there was this woman named Suzanne, and there were four people named Suzanne who shared her last name uh, in uh, in the the 2002, I think, phone book, right? Whichever phone book it was that I was using at the time. So I had four addresses to try to run down. And... Uh, I got to the first one of these addresses and it was in, uh, you know, kind of a public housing complex in the 13th LD small, uh, a sort of, you know, middle class ish, lower middle class neighborhood. Um, and it seemed 
kind of promising. It seemed like somebody definitely could have died in, in, in one of these apartments. So I approached the building and there was an elderly woman walking her dog outside. And I said, you know, did you by any chance um, know a woman named Suzanne uh, who died, you know, who, who lived in this building, who died in, in 2003 during the heat wave? And she said, oh, yeah, she was my next door neighbor. And she said, yeah, did she die? In the- yeah, I guess she did die in the heat wave. Yeah, you're right. And so I then questioned her. I thought, oh, this is fantastic, right? I've got, you know, what an epidemiologist would call a, a case control study. I've got two people who live next door to each other who are demographically quite similar, you know, very elderly women. Uh, one of whom died, the other uh, of whom lived. Um, this woman started telling me about how Suzanne had lived completely alone and, and had relatively few contacts. She occasionally would rent out a little bit of space in her apartment to a um, uh, to like a student, you know, who might stay there for a few months or you know, and so on. But other than that, she had very few social contacts. She didn't. She was disabled. She couldn't get up and get to the door. And meanwhile, this other woman is very much able-bodied. She was out walking her dog. Uh, so a dog is getting her out of the apartment a few times a day and, and you know, keep her in, keeping her embedded in a social network. And then another guy came up and he, you know, joined in the story and this was all, you know, perfect, right? It all made, made very good sense. And then I got the death notice and I found out that I had the wrong Suzanne Henri, that this woman had actually died in 2002, 10 months before the heat wave, right? And so you know, it was a, a complete mistake. Now I asked leading questions. I wasn't a very good ethnographer. I was, I was kind of new at this game. And so I asked really leading questions. You know, I said, I, I'm curious about this woman who died during the heat wave. So I gave them that information to work with, but they bought it. They went, you know, they completely ran with that story and it made perfect sense to them. But almost invariably, whenever I talked to people about other deaths that were outside that profile of being an elderly woman, uh, you know, if I talk to someone about somebody in their 40s, uh, for example, the, the response I got was the heat didn't kill them. Right? This person made some bad life decisions. This person was an alcoholic. This person was a heroin addict. This person had all kinds of horrendous health problems. That's what really killed them. The heat didn't do them any good, but that's not what killed them. Right. Uh, it was this other set of health problems that killed them. And so the very nature of what constitutes a cause of death in the social imagination I thought was really profoundly interesting. That is that when we create these kinds of risk profiles and we say that the very elderly and very elderly women in particular are the ones who die during heat waves, then we tend to look away from anyone else as being potentially vulnerable. And that's something that this set of anecdotes, I think, drove toward. Yeah, that's great. Um, so Rick, we're, we're nearing the end of our time. And I, again, want to thank you for uh, for talking with us. And first of all, thank you actually for writing, uh, for writing the book. Uh, it well, really thanks so is, much for, for the interview. <laughs> it really is truly fascinating. Um, so I just want to ask one final question. Uh, what are you working on now? Yeah, so I've got kind of two projects in the hopper at the moment. One is a global history of the environment uh, for a series of, of short books, actually, that Oxford is doing. Um, and another is something that's really a, kind of a nascent project. I, I'm, I'm really just figuring out what it might be like at all. Um, and that's something where I want to look at sort of changes in consumer demand over the, say, the 19th and 20th centuries and how that creates pathways for new emerging epidemics. So one example for that might be the way in which a global demand for rubber uh, with the rise of the automobile in the early 20th century 
um, creates new relationships between people and nature in uh, colonial settings in, say, equatorial Africa, which might have created possibilities for introducing uh, a simian immunodeficiency virus into a human population, right, and, and the beginnings of HIV. Um, likewise, things like the suburbanization of the Northeast U.S. and the ways in which cutting down forests to build new suburban developments creates new contacts between people and deer uh, and therefore introduces Lyme disease um, into, the, into the human population. So, you know, maybe a series of, of chapters exploring different phenomena along those lines about sort of the unintended consequences of economic change and, uh, and environmental change that goes along with that. Oh, that sounds fascinating. Well, definitely... Uh, be on the lookout uh, for those for those projects. Um, we'll see how it works out. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so again, uh, Rick, we just want to thank you for being on uh, New Books uh, in History today. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation. Hope you did too. Um, and thanks again. Bye. Thanks so much for asking such wonderful questions. <laughs>